Well, let me encourage you to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll see that we've provided some below the chairs in front of you. And, and you can turn in those Bibles to page 870. 870. As we get started this morning, I was evaluating this week, we've almost made it halfway through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and uh, Luke having 20, 24 chapters, um, we are getting very close to the end, to the middle, and, and working our way to the second half. And I thought it would be valuable for us just to sit back for a second and reflect to make sure as we continue sp- studying along that we see the big picture of the Gospel of Luke and what Luke is doing. And so at our very first sermon, as Tanner opened up and gave us an introduction to Luke, he argued this, that the message of Luke is God's mission fulfilled through Jesus who came to bring salvation to all people. Did you get that? God's mission fulfilled through Jesus who came to bring salvation to all people. And the message of the gospel is simple. As we've been studying along, we've seen this, that the gospel contains good news and bad news. On, on, the, on one hand, the bad news that Luke shares with us is that you can never be holy or good enough to be accepted by God. That's the bad news. Christ came to seek and save the lost. He says, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He said, I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. The bad news is that Luke tells us is that we are sinners. But the good news, simply we could say in three words, God saves sinners. That is great news that is shared to us in, in, in the gospel of Luke. We see that in Luke 19, 10. Jesus came to seek and to save. So we are lost and we are sinners, but Jesus came to seek and to save. And many of you have responded to this message of the gospel with repentance and faith. But also, as we've studied the gospel of Luke, we see that there are two equal and opposite enemies to the gospel. Now, on one hand, we have irreligion. You'll see it on the screen here. Irreligion on one hand. In the gospel of Luke, irreligion can be seen in the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the demon-possessed, the irreligious are those who reject God's commands and determine their own set of values that they're going to live by. We see this today in many that reject God's commands and they are determining what truth is for them and what standards they're going to live by. On the other hand, the enemy to the gospel is religion. Religion in the gospel of Luke can be seen in the Pharisees and the scribes. And religion says this, if I live a holy and good life, then I will be accepted before God. Religion is man's attempt to be accepted by God. Where do you fall in these three camps? Some of you have responded to the gospel. You may be here today and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm probably in the irreligious. You know, I, I've, I've kind of determined my own morality. I've set my own set of values that I'm living by. And, and you may even claim, man, I'm not really religious. Um, maybe you came with a friend today. Maybe you're You just wanted to see what's going on here. For some of you, and I would say probably the majority of us would would maybe even fall in religion. 
And, and I want you to think about this. This is scary. I would, I would agree with Luther who says that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And the reason this is scary is because the majority of the religious leaders rejected Jesus. Let me just pose a question before you. On these three categories, irreligion and irreligion specifically, when you look at the Gospel of Luke, who responds to Jesus? It's the irreligious. It's the sinners. It's the prostitute. It's the demon-possessed. It's the tax collectors. On the other hand, who are the ones that reject Jesus? The Pharisees and the scribes. Do you see the magnitude of this text? That most of us probably, if we had to lean one way or the other, would probably be religion, and it's the religious folks, for the most part, who rejected Jesus. And so, the reason you need to listen today is because of this. Our passage, the passage today is probably Jesus' strongest rebuke in all of the Gospels. And you know who he directs it at? The religious leaders. His strongest rebuke isn't, isn't directed at the, the, the prostitute, the sinners. It's at the religious leaders. So we need to pay attention. But, but for those of you that may be saying, hey, you know, does that mean if I'm the irreligious kind, I can just kind of clock out today? Let me just pose this before you. I, I would agree with Tim Keller, who says this, even, even seemingly irreligious people are actually religious. Now, does that not sound like a contradiction? You, you're claiming to be irreligious, and yet I'm saying you're religious. Well, he says this, even irreligious people earn their acceptability and sense of worth by living up to their set of values. You follow me? So even the irreligious, they determine a set of values that they're going to live by. And how do they find worth and acceptability in life? Well, do I meet these values that I've set up for myself? Am I keeping them? And that in itself is a form of religion. And so the point of the text today is heavy, but it is this. It is possible to be remarkably religious and yet be eternally damned. That is strong. I know that. I know that is strong. But I'm, what I'm trying to do today is, is take the passage of Jesus and be faithful to what he said. And so this, this should be a, a strong warning to us to listen up and to evaluate Ourselves. So let's look here at the text and, and let's read through this. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. It says, while Jesus who was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. This is basically just setting the scene for what's about to happen. You've got a Pharisee that's invited Jesus over for a meal. As we read through the text, we're going to find out that it's not just one Pharisee, but there are all other kinds of religious leaders at this mill. We're going to see scribes, lawyers that are at this mill as well. And verse 38, it says, The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. So setting the context, Pharisees, we see this in Mark chapter 7, that they have a tradition of washing their hands properly 
before a meal so that they would be clean. The issue here is cleanliness. And not just physically clean, but spiritually clean. And so Jesus comes in and he doesn't follow their tradition of how to be clean, to be washed before the meal. And so this Pharisee is astonished. He is amazed that Jesus does not follow his tradition. And so this sets the stage for us to see an interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And so what I'm going to do as we walk through now is I'm going to give you four reasons why the gospel is better than religion. You're going to see Jesus address the religious leaders, and I'm going to take that and say, what can we learn about the gospel as the right way to move forward and be accepted by God? And so the first truth that I want to share with you is this. Religion ignores the heart. The gospel cleanses the heart. Let's continue. Verse 39. Look at what Jesus says. And and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Do you hear the strong language here? You fools. Did not he who made the inside make, sorry, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? The reason the Pharisees were at fault is because they had ignored the inside of the cup. The Pharisees paid great attention to externals. I would say probably many of us do this well also. We could read through Matthew. How does it describe the Pharisees? The Pharisees would love to stand on the street corners and pray aloud religious things. They are known for giving to the needy food and money. They are known for even fasting. A lot of external religious things that we would say, man, those are good things, that you should be doing those things. But yet, as we read, they did not pay as much attention to the inside as they paid to the outside. How does, Luke, how does Jesus describe them here? He says on the inside they are full of greed and wickedness. So externally they would give to the poor, but it says in other places that they robbed widows. They pray and they fast, but at other places it says that they would take oaths so that they would avoid paying their vows. Matthew describes them well. He says this, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. You see the external? They honor me with their lips, but internal, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We learn something here, and this is what Jesus is getting at. It doesn't matter how clean the outside of the cup is. doesn't matter how great your lips praise God, how much you pray, you fast, you give, if the inside, the heart is dirty. So the point, doing good deeds without, without addressing your heart is as worthless as cleansing the outside of the cup and leaving the inside dirty. Now, just to make this clear for you, Lee and I love to have people in our home. And so let's say me and you have a conversation 
After the service today, I said, man, Lee and I would love for you to come over and have dinner with us. And so, man, we, you know, Lee prepares this extravagant meal, you know, and I'm the one that's, you know, washing the dishes and making sure everything is, is clean and great. And so we sit down at the table and, and I tell you, I just want you to know, I've spent hours cleaning the outside of the cup and Lee has made this great sweet tea that will knock your shoot. You're going to love it. And you respond and you say, well, well tell me, how, how much time did you spend cleaning the inside of the cup? Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't clean the inside of the cup. Now you tell me, are you, are you drinking the sweet tea? The point that he's driving home is it doesn't matter how much devotion and attention you pay to the externals. If you do not address your heart, it's worthless. Let's get a little more practical here. Our mission, gospel community mission, the mission of Redemption Hill is not to produce a bunch of people who look great on the outside. Our mission is not, when our goal is to get people to read their Bibles more and to be more faithful at church and to join a community group and to join our church and to give sacrificially in the offering plate because do you realize that we can produce a lot of beautiful people on the outside that are dirty on the inside and it's worthless. So even, even as Tanner holds up our movement card, Man, and as we pray for people to invite your friends, we're not trying to produce a bunch of little Pharisees that are walking around in Medford. What our goal is, is that the heart would be changed by the gospel. And then with a heart change, it overflows and affects everything we do in life. This also means that if, if I just clean the outside of the cup, the reality is, is no matter how hard I scrub on the outside, it doesn't clean the inside. So, so it doesn't matter how much effort you walk away today and say, man, I'm going to put so much more effort in being externally clean and reading my Bible and, and not dropping F-bombs and, and not doing whatever you want to say. I'm going to try to be as clean. No matter how hard you try, it doesn't clean the inside. That's the problem with religion. Religion doesn't address the heart. Now, one more kind of practical application here. This also means does it, that it doesn't do us any good to keep putting on an, a beautiful external outside when we show up on Sunday. Hey, hey, I know how it is. I mean, you rolled out of bed this morning. You may have had a conversation. You may have had an argument with your wife. You may have had to lay into one of your kids because they're not being obedient and doing what you asked to do. You may have been driving here in your car and thrown up a few signals to those driving around you and laid on your horn. But as soon as you drive into Spring Step in the parking lot, what are you doing? Yep. Man, let's cover that up. Man, hey, we're going to church. Man, I need to... And I need everybody to make sure that man, my family's got it together. Hey, you know what? I know we've been fighting and, and that we've driven to the car and there's been this brick wall between me and you, Lee, but now we've got to pretend that we really desperately and passionately love each other. Hey, you're laughing at me, but isn't that true? Man, everybody shows up 
today. And the goal is, is I'm going to do everything I can to make sure everybody else knows that I got it together. So you know what's going to happen? What's going to lead to a movement of God in our church? It's going to be when we stop pretending. Will today be the day that you stop pretending? And, and, and here's how, where you can find comfort. Because why do we cover up? The reason we cover up is because what, what do we fear? If people really know who we are, what do we fear? You fear that I'm going to pick up the rock and I'm going to throw it at you and I'm going to condemn you. But you know what even the gospel teaches us about this? The gospel should lead you to come and say, you know what, I'm going to be real because the gospel teaches us that we're all on the same page. Every single one of us are dirty. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Hey, and I know what you're thinking. I know some of you are sitting here thinking, you know what? I know you're talking about the sin stuff, John, but I'm not a sinner. I'm really a good person. And man, I would just challenge you, even today, the Pharisees thought the very same thing. You see, that's our, that's our temptation, is to, to go down the same path that the Pharisees did. And they basically said, Jesus, no, this message isn't for us. They, they, are, they are in totally denial that this is a message for them. This is a message for the sinners. And Jesus is saying, no, that's why he's given his strongest rebuke is because he's trying to tell them, look, you need to see you are not clean. And so maybe today you would realize that everyone needs the gospel, whether you realize it or not. And maybe you would even pray a prayer like Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. I would even challenge you today. If you're, you're here today and you say, man, John, I'm, I'm really not, man, I've got it together. I'm a good person. I'll say, well, we'll pray this. God, come and search my heart. God, you search my heart today and you show and reveal if there's any wickedness in me. The gospel ignores the heart, but the good news is the, sorry, religion ignores the heart. The gospel cleanses your heart. Let's keep reading here. In Luke chapter 11, verse 40. He says, you fools, did not he who made the inside make the inside also? And then verse 41, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. What is the solution? He says, give as alms those things that are within. Now, before I explain what it means, I'm going to say what it doesn't mean. The NIV translated and says, but be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. That's not uh, that is not what he's saying. He is not saying, go and continue to be generous and you'll be clean because we've just shown that no external deeds are going to clean the inside. What are you saying? He's saying this, in the same way that you are generous in giving alms to the poor and to the needy, give as generously with your heart. So how does a person become clean? They give generously of their hearts to God. Give as alms those things that are within your heart to God and you will be clean, which leads us to ask this question. How does me giving my heart to God, how does the gospel cleanse my heart? I want to show us a few passages here to kind of help us think through this. If I'm going to be clean on the inside, then the sin on the inside must be addressed. Here in Hebrews 9 says this, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Before we move on, let me point out a few things here. The way the gospel cleanses us is it provides the remedy for your sin. Let's actually go to the next one here. Hebrews 9, in this passage, it continues on. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The way that we are washed clean is by Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood. Now, go back to that previous verse there. Let's go back to the previous one there, Long. How could Jesus shed his blood for your sin. Do you see what it says here? Before it says purify, it says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. This is the gospel. The gospel is, I am not good, but he is good, and I am in him. Jesus is without blemish. I have blemish. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. He is the only one that is good. That is why the gospel is good news. The gospel isn't, hey, let's show everybody how good we are. The gospel is, let's acknowledge how sinful I am and look to Jesus and how perfect he has. And so the reason the blood of Christ can purify your heart is because his heart is pure. And so the gospel cleanses us as we see this, as we embrace this, and as we believe this. I've got one other verse here. I love it. It's, it's the promise of the new covenant found in Ezekiel 36. And this is what the prophet says. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And I will give you a new heart and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what the gospel does. It cleanses us. God changes our hearts. And how does he do this? Here's how he does it. I'm just going to briefly share this with you. First of all, you cannot embrace and appropriate the blood of Christ until you admit your need to God. Have you come to God admitting and confessing, God, I am dirty? Second, you not only admit your need to God, you ask God to forgive you. You repent of your sin. You admit that you are a sinner and you say, God, I see that I'm a sinner. I see that I deserve punishment. God, cleanse me, forgive me. And then third, trust in Jesus alone to rescue you. This is hard because you know what religion says? Religion says, if I am good, well, I'll be accepted. But the gospel says, you will never be good enough. Admit that. Come to Jesus. Repent and trust in him alone, not in yourself. You are nowhere here. This is all about Jesus. And if you're here today and you're saying, man, I get this. I'm seeing, I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I want to, I want to respond and I want the gospel. What, and you say, John, what should I do? This is what I'm telling you to do. This is what the Bible says. Admit, confess, repent, and believe. And you will be saved. The gospel cleanses your heart. The second as we continue on here, what I want to just briefly show as we continue to walk through here is that it doesn't just cleanse your heart, that it produces a new heart in you. So verse 42, Luke 11, but woe to you Pharisees, 
For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. What the gospel does is it produces an authentic heart. Because what do we see in the Pharisees? Hey, they're meticulous. They give every herb, and yet they neglect the love and justice of God. And what he's highlighting here in the Pharisees is you're hypocrites. You want to be so meticulous about your traditions, and yet you neglect the clear and obvious teaching of Scripture. And so I'll just say this. One of the greatest apologetics of the day is authenticity. What's the number one reason many people say, man, I don't want anything to do with church or Christians? You know what they're going to say? Hypocrites. You know, you know what the world is looking? Is they want to see somebody who is genuine and authentic. They want to see leaders, pastors, who are genuine and authentic. Yeah, I'm preaching to myself. Yeah, I'm preaching to Tanner. This is a, this is a rebuke to me and a challenge. John, they want, because what do we see in many churches around? You've got leaders that are hypocrites. They want to see parents. You know what your kids want to see, parents? They want to see authenticity. They don't want to see you put a show Monday through Friday and show up, and everybody, you know what? We may not see it, but your kids see it if you're putting a show on today. Our kids want to see authentic genuineness that we honor God in everything that we do. Students, kids, you know what your friends want to see? They want to see that it's authentic, that it's genuine, that you don't say one thing and then go do another, but you're honest. And you know what leads to great authenticity? It's an acknowledgement that we are not saved by what we do or saved by Christ. And so we can be honest with ourselves about our sin because we look to Christ, and yet it should be a driving motivator to honor him with everything we do in life. It leads to an authentic heart. Second, it leads to a humble heart. Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. Religion leads to pride. If, if your acceptability before God's based on what you do, then you're going to be walking around just like the Pharisees. Hey, look how many times I pray a day. Look how much I give. But when you come to understand the gospel, the gospel leads to great humility because it's not about us. It is about Christ. And so the challenge for believers, you may be here and say, yeah, I've embraced the gospel. Let me ask this, is the gospel producing an authentic heart in you? Is the gospel producing great humility? Maybe for many of you that have responded to the gospel, today is a great reminder to reflect. Maybe you have your heart, you've seen, is drifted toward religion and legalism. And, and today it's a message to call you back and say, no, it is not about what you do. It is about Christ. And maybe today is the confess of your pride. Maybe that's your response today. Confess your pride, your arrogance, your hypocrisy. And then, finally, it leads to a life-giving heart. Verse 44 says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What's the problem with unmarked graves? Well, tradition says, and if you touch the grave, and it even says in Numbers 19, if you touch the grave, that you would become unclean. So the problem is, is that you are like unmarked graves. You appear to be clean, but in fact, what does he say to the Pharisees? You are unclean and your followers don't even know it. You are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without even knowing it. Is they, the, the irony here is that they're the ones that actually claim to be clean and in fact they are dead. 
and their followers who they are proclaiming, the Pharisees are saying, follow me and we're headed to the path of life. In fact, they're leading them to the grave. And so what the gospel does in us is it gives a life-giving spirit that we point to Christ who was raised from the dead and gives life. And we point them to the one who has life. The gospel cleanses your heart. Let's continue on. Truth number two I want to share with you today, that the gospel is better than religion. Religion as burdens, the gospel removes burdens. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Lawyer. So we had the Pharisee, now we've got the lawyer, the scribes. These are the ones that help the Pharisees with the interpretation and application of the law. And he says, Jesus says in 46, and he said, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What are these burdens? These burdens were religious duties added to the law. And these burdens, in effect, drove people away from God. So you've got these scribes that are saying, okay, you've got the Bible, but then you've got the traditions and the law, and, and they're, they're loading on them all of these extra-religious duties that you've got to do. And the problem that Jesus says here is that you not only load them with burdens that are hard to bear, you do not lift a finger yourself, not only to help them bear them, but to do them yourself. Guys, get this. Trying to affect moralistic change through religion is like trying to bend a piece of metal without the softening effect of heat. This is an imagery Tim Keller uses in his book, Center Church. He's like, you, you really want to be moral and you're going to do it through religious effort? You take a piece of metal and you try to bend it without heating it. And he says, here's what's going to happen. You may bend it, but it's going to snap back. Or you may bend it and it's going to what? Break. Here's my fear. And you know what? This may be you... Today, many people, after years of being crushed under moralistic behavioralism, abandon their faith altogether, complaining that they are exhausted and can't keep up. That's what religion leads to. Religion heaps burdens. Do this, do this, do this, and you'll be accepted by God. And eventually, if that is the path you go, and I'll say any religion, Hindu, You've got the way of motivate meditation, the way of works, the way of knowledge, the way of devotion. You keep these and moksha, that's what you'll get. Islam, you've got the five pillars, confession, prayer, almsgiving, fast, pilgrimage. You do those things and you'll be accepted. Buddhism, follow the noble eightfold path. We could go through Christian. For many nominal Christians, this is their view of Christianity. Well, if I do this, do this, do this, I'll be accepted by God. But the message of the gospel is that if... Those things will lead you to despair. Man, are you in despair today? Maybe this is you. Maybe you're that metal rod. You've been trying by moralistic behavioralism to bend it without the heat of the gospel of grace. So whereas religion as burdens, the gospel removes your burdens. If you don't get anything today, I want you to get this. The message of Christianity is not do this and you'll be accepted. I'm not giving you a bunch of burdens today to go home and try to lead to great life. What I'm telling you is is there is nothing that you can do to be accepted 
The message of Christianity is this, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is Jesus speaking. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely at heart, and you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do any of you long for rest today? Are many of you wore out? The message to you today is come to Jesus and you will find rest. I love one of my favorite books to continue to meditate on. It's a book called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. I want you to just listen with me with what he says. He says, the gospel reminds me that my righteous standing with God always holds firm regardless of my performance because my standing is based solely on the work of Jesus and not mine. Did you get that? From every day forward, my righteous standing is not dependent on what I do. It is dependent upon Christ and his work is finished. He's already lived a perfect life. He's already died to death and paid the penalty for your sin. So he continues, I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. You see, when we come to understand the gospel that that Jesus has taken my burden and that I have found rest in him. Now, what we're doing today is a delight. Worship is a delight. Community group, discipleship is a delight. The pursuit of holiness is not so that God will love me more or be accepted more. It is because I have been accepted and God loves me. Changes our motivation. The gospel removes your burdens. Has your burden been removed? Come to Jesus today. Third truth I want to share with you is that religion rejects Scripture. The gospel is the key to Scripture. Verse 47. You're going to have to hang with me here because this is going to get a little confusing, but I'm going to do my best to help explain and, and help us follow here. Verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now this raises a number of questions. Who are these prophets that got killed? Who were their fathers? And why did they kill them? Okay, those are the questions we're going to seek to answer as we move through the text here. Verse 48. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tomb. So what he's doing, he's connecting the Pharisees and the scribes with their fathers as if what they did, you're guilty of also. Now let's continue reading 49. Therefore also the wisdom of God said. What is the wisdom of God? Basically, the God in, God in his wisdom. What's going on here? God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. For I tell you, it will be required of this generation. All right. Their fathers are their ancestors. Their fathers are Israel. And, and the prophets are 
or the messengers of God, that God had sent in the Old Testament proclaiming, and, and we could read through the prophets. We read through Ezekiel a second ago, one of the prophets who's proclaiming, repent of your idolatry and return to the Lord. But for the most part, what do we see of Israel? They continued in their idolatry, and they were exiled. And so who are these prophets? He mentions Abel, and where we learn about Abel? Genesis chapter 4. And then he mentions Zechariah, and the most likely designation of this is the Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24. So what he's doing here, the first book in the Hebrew Bible is Genesis, and you've got Abel. The last book in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles. Now I know in, in the order that you have here, Chronicles is earlier on, but in the Hebrew Bible, you go take a Hebrew class in seminary, you're going to study, you're going to be given a Hebrew Bible, it's going to have this order, and Chronicles is going to be last. And so what what Jesus is doing here is from the beginning to the end of all the prophets in the Old Testament is what he's describing. Now, we get a flare of this when we come to Acts 7 and asking why did they persecute them. Look at what Stephen does. You guys know Stephen and Acts. He's the one that's he's given testimony to God and then he's eventually persecuted and killed. He says this, you stiff-necked people. He, he's just as firm as Jesus is. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Okay, why did they persecute and kill him? What were they announcing? The coming of the Messiah. They were pointing to the one who was to come, the Messiah, the Christ. Repent of your idolatry and trust in the one to come. And it says, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. What's going on is that Jesus is laying judgment on them because they are in the same line of their fathers. The same fathers who persecuted and killed the prophets. And ironically, you know what they're about to do? Persecute and kill the prophet, the righteous one. See what's going on? They have rejected the witness of Scripture. And now Jesus in prophetic language is saying, and this is exactly what you're about to do to me. Not only do they crucify Jesus, we read through Acts and we see persecution of Peter, of John, of Stephen, who after saying this gets stoned to death, of the early church and of Paul. Religion rejects scripture, but the gospel is the key to scripture. What happens here in Luke 11 is he's basically saying, when he says, you build the tombs of the prophets, you consent to their deeds, you're as guilty as they are. And he says, the blood of all of them is laid on you. Now, this may be referring to the destruction of the temple, which happens in AD 70, but most surely it refers to the judgment at the end of those who reject the Messiah. So religion rejects Scripture, but the gospel is the key to Scripture. I want you to take your Bible and, and flip over to Luke 24. We're going to go to the very end real quick. Luke 24.
Luke 24. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. At the very end, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's on the road to Emmaus. And he says this, And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And it says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see the picture here? The Pharisees and the scribes had the very same scriptures that you and I do, yet they rejected the message that pointed to the Messiah. And so what Jesus does, you slow of heart to believe all the prophet says, it says he, he starts in Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And he walks through the scriptures and he's explaining everything that is about who? That is about him. You guys realize that the Old Testament isn't plan A and the New Testament plan B with Jesus. The Old Testament is the continual plan of God to bring salvation through a Messiah. And so everything from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Jump forward to verse 44. And so his, his last conversation here with the disciples before he ascends, he says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's referring to the threefold structure of the Hebrew Bible. The law, the prophets, and then the Psalms, which was the Psalms was the heading of the writings, the last section, and so it was the largest book, so many times it would just be referred to as the Psalms. He's saying basically the whole Old Testament, he says, this is about me. And look at what he says here in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The gospel is the key to all of scripture. That's why every Sunday when we preach, we will preach the gospel. Whether we are in Genesis or in Chronicles or in Luke, the gospel will be central. Let's go on. The last truth I'm going to share with you, going back to Luke 11, is that religion leads to fear, but the gospel grants assurance. Luke chapter 11, verse 52. What are you lawyers? You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were Entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say, and eventually they do persecute him. Last three verses, chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they had that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What is the motivation here? You may be thinking today, maybe it will never come out. And the last challenge I will lay before you is this. Everything 
in the end will be made known. Everything done in secret, everything done in the dark, everything done in the private of your own bedroom will be made known. If religion is you, all this leads is to a fearful expectation before God. It can only lead to fear. Maybe even today, as, as I'm sharing this with you, and, and you may even be playing a movie in your mind of everything that you've done in a secret, and the thought may be, man, I hope that never comes out. Religion can only lead to fear because one day it will come out. God knows everything, and he sees everything. That's the implication. But the gospel grants assurance. I don't have to hide the secret things of my heart. I don't have to fear dying and standing before God because when I stand before God someday and he says, John, why should I let you into heaven? My answer isn't because I've done my best to be good. If that were my answer, it would lead to fear because there are all kind of hidden things that I would hope that would not come out, and they would. But the gospel, when God asked me that, I say, God, I don't deserve entrance into heaven, but Jesus died for my sin, and I am in him. It's only because of Christ that you should let me in. And so, with the gospel, I live my day with great assurance because there is no sin that Satan can hold before me. It's been taken care of in Christ. Not just all of my past sins. Every sin that I will ever commit in the future, Christ has taken upon himself. And so, on my worst of days, the gospel reminds me of God's unrelenting grace to me. And on my best of days, the gospel reminds me, trust solely in Christ. You know, there was a Pharisee in the Bible that actually killed and persecuted Christians. But one day, everything changed. And this is what he confessed in 1 Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The outcome of the Pharisees doesn't have to be your outcome. Paul killed Stephen and yet came to see his sin and repented. You can do the same today and find great rest and comfort and assurance for your soul. Will you come to Jesus today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this word. Lord, this word provides great assurance to those 
that are followers of you, that we need to daily be reminded of the righteousness of Christ. But God, it's also a warning that we can be remarkably religious and yet be eternally damned. Lord, I pray today, even for the irreligious and the religious, in our, all of our religion and our attempts to be accepted before you, that we would humbly acknowledge our sin and we would trust in Christ alone to rescue us. God, you search our hearts now as we respond and help us to respond rightly, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.